Hi, and welcome to episode 64 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and today I'm talking with Luke Skaberis. If you've ever met Luke, you'll know he's larger than life. Full of joie de vivre and good humour, he attacks life with gusto from his fabulous garden to his renowned cooking skills. So it's no surprise that this life force is also manifested through his art. He's known chiefly for his landscape paintings, which are created with layers of glorious colour and a variety of marks. His drawings and plein air works have an immediacy which take us into his experience, whether it's a boab tree, a bird or a portrait. But paradoxically, what's most important to him as a landscape painter is in fact people. Those who are the custodians or owners of the landscape are just as important to him as the landscape itself, and he needs to connect with them in order to create his work. He's painted landscapes around the world from Europe to China, but it's in Australia that he spent most of his painting life, interpreting the landscapes of far northern Queensland to Bruny Island in Tasmania, from the Kimberley Coast in northwestern Australia to the central desert areas where he's created art with the Indigenous people of those lands. He's had 40 solo shows. His work has been hung in the Art Gallery of New South Wales, is contained in the collections of many regional galleries, in corporate and major private collections, and his upcoming show of paintings from Western Australia's Kimberley Coast opens at King Street Gallery on William in Sydney in March 2019, about three weeks after this podcast goes online. I spoke with Luke in Historic Hill End, which is about four hours from Sydney, where he has his studio in the midst of a wonderful artist community. And as usual, all the works we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com. I started by asking Luke what memories he had of art as a child. Well, I did grow up in a house filled with pictures, and also I spent a lot of time as a child in a friend's house whose house was absolutely choked with pictures and books from floor to ceiling. Like paintings? Paintings, paintings. and drawings and prints, yeah. etchings, watercolours, charcoals, everything. Their grandfather had been a, a very well-respected artist in Holland. And, um, and so I, I grew up sort of learning a lot about how to look at pictures and, and what paintings and drawings were actually made of. Not just how to decorate a room or, yeah. or whatever, but um, my mother has a good collection of pictures too. We lived at Wedderburn, which is mm. a, a beautiful little pocket of the bush south of Sydney, between sort of Campbelltown and Wollongong. Anyway, there's um, a wonderful... Uh, I guess now it's a history of artists having mm. lived there. Mm. Um, when I was growing up, they were all still there. Some have gone, like Joan Brazel... Roy Jackson, John Peart, yeah, yeah. sadly gone. I suppose Suzanne Archer's still there, David oh, Fairbairn, yes. and Elizabeth Cummings, of course. Yes, David Hawkes as well. Suzanne Archer, David Fairbairn, Fred Bratt, and there are new artists. Al Poulet, for example, oh, has just moved there. Of course, who won the Paddington Art Prize. Yes. Yeah. It's interesting because when I was growing up, it was a, a, um, a sort of still forming itself, really, because John Peart arrived at Wedderburn um, sort of later in the piece and Sue and David did too um, and I came came in uh, you know as a as a young kid and learned 
all about these wonderful people that were like a tribe of mm. amazing, colourful, wonderfully um, uh, generous, really, to me, artists who um, had formed, had carved themselves these studios out of the bush and very much in the bush. They were all living well and truly in the landscape with trees all around the studios and I just felt as though I had found a niche of people who I looked up to as creative, bohemian, energetic, wonderful, fun and dedicated people who were totally mm. devoted to their work. Was that the first time you would have been exposed to like artist studios, for example? Yeah, absolutely. But I what never really like? quite yeah. imagined or presumed that I would necessarily do it myself, but I was completely enamoured with uh, the, the, the clutter and the study involved in a, in a studio that... I mean, invariably, studios are filled with remnants of an artist's travels, previous works, prospective works, and the ongoing study and learning that any artist worth their salt is always learning and there's mm. a, um, a you know the sense of piles of books normally mean there's a lot to be done doesn't normally mean that they've read all those books so there's a lot of books that we would like to get around to reading <laughs> I, I firmly believe in the old school form or method of of investigating the stories and names and places and artworks that you come across by slowly going through books and then cross-referencing with other things and drawing conclusions and comparisons with artists and periods of art and artworks that might not necessarily have anything logically to do with each other, but there's a way that you can kind of pull threads of thought together for yourself with. Mm. And it might be completely abstract. It might have only something to do with your memory or a composition of a painting that you realise is very similar to another or something, you know, mm. that kind of strikes a note in you. And there's a, mm. a playful childlike side of that that I like to follow. And what do you remember what uh, artists you were drawn to in that respect? Like what, what sort of books or that you remember that you might have gone back to a lot? Anything I could get my hands on. Yeah. I, I would, but I mean, I remember, oh, I guess... I remember most vividly looking at the books by um, about work, say by Morandi, oh, yeah. Giorgio Morandi, and uh, John, John Peter Russell. Yeah. John Peter Russell was a real early hero to me of Australian art, mm. and I realised at the time that he was hugely unrecognised. Well, of course, you went with you and McLeod to Belle Ile, which is where he lived, mm. and you created that spectacular body of work. Congratulations. It was Thank such you. a great show at Manly Art Gallery. Going to, the, to Belle Ile, though, was like, uh, it was like a kind of going to visit the film set of my favourite film. I mean, Catherine Hunter, who's a filmmaker, I've been admiring her film since I was very young, and, and she rang to say, um, ask me, she said, what do you know about John Peter Russell? And I said, heaps, what do you want to know? She said, well, I'm going to Belle Isle to shoot a film there um, and we want a contemporary landscape artist to come and reflect on camera about John Peter Russell. Mm. And I was waiting for her to say, 
I, I said to her, so whose phone number do you want? <laughs> and she said, no, you. And I nearly jumped out of my skin. It was so exciting. And uh, so we all met up there. I was already in Europe with you and having been to the Western Front. And, uh, I mean, having visited the landscape along the Western Front, we weren't at the war. And what was that? So when you went there, because this ties in with travel as well and trips and art, you know, painting trips. When you first go to a place... Is it Groundhog Day? Is it like I, you approach it every single time the same way or is it a totally new experience every time you go to a With any place? luck, it's a totally new experience. I mean, I, I've got places that I've visited and then revisited and lived in too, like, you know, Wedderburn, Hill End, uh, Palm Beach, you know, wherever I've lived, you know, you observe it differently. The seasons change, the time of day, your mood. Does, mm. It could be anything. Mm. And um, I would dread the routine of going to a landscape and just hoping to paint it again in the same way as though it was a still life mm. with a lamp on, you know, <laughs> next to it. You think, okay, well, here we go again. I'm going to hope that something new happens. I think Albert Einstein said that a sign of madness or mediocrity was to do the same thing over and over and expect different results. You have to see things in a new way, even if they haven't necessarily changed. So even when you go... So you've been to some places again and again, like Wilcannia mm. and um, even this show that's coming up at Kimberley Coast, you've been before, mm. so this is the second mm. time. Do you find there's any benefit to having been there before? Like have you figured things out, a few things out? Oh, yes, yes. There's a... You can fast-track a lot of the, uh, the, the learning curve. You can, you, can, you can smooth over a whole lot of stuff that you've seen and done before and you know that if you're going to um, apply that part of the landscape to yourself but in another idea, in another way, from another angle or in a different mood, you've, you've got that sort of understanding of it might be the geology or the vegetation or something. It's mm. in your hard drive. It's, you've got it in your, in your mm. kit bag. You know, it's in your tool bag. You've got those rocks or those trees or a boab or whatever it is. Okay, you've done that last time, but... You might do it again, but you might use that to actually look at something around it in a different way. So instead of just focusing on, say, for example, the anatomy of a boab tree or a river red gum on the Darling River, you've got that understanding. It's not a cliche, but it's a, a thing that you know how to do, so you can do that, but then you can go on and do the next thing. So it might be the sweep of the horizon mm. and the way that the light sort of sits on that and how to then study a way of, of making a representation of it. Can we jump back again now? I want to take you back to Wedderburn because I know when you were, I think it was in your, when you were about 17, a huge influence on you, I think in your teenage years, was the work and guidance of Elizabeth Cummings who lived at Wedderburn. And, of course, Elizabeth Cummings is one, one of our leading Australian artists. Can you tell me a bit about that? Well, Elizabeth has a an approach to to drawing and painting that I immediately sort of struck a chord with me, and and we got along very well. And at the end of high school, I asked her if she would teach me to draw once a week, mm. um, and I offered her ten dollars an hour, <laughs> and <laughs> which is actually twice what I was earning when I was in the pottery studio nearby. 
Anyway, <laughs> right. I don't know if she took my $10 or not. Um, didn't matter. We got together once a week, at least once a week, and, and drew in her studio. And, um, and we drew each other. So she would go into sort of how to draw portraits and still lifes. We would do the, you know, whatever was on her kitchen table or sideboard at the time. Mm. And, and was uh, that pencil? Like, so you were doing... Mostly, yeah. yeah it was just... That's it. You know, she, I realised and she wanted to sort of impose upon me the, an understanding of the importance of drawing because it's such a tool, it's such a uh, device, a, a series of... It is the fundamental, um, I think, requirement to be able to make a mark that is either a shape or an outline or a, a tonal expression of what it is that you're looking at that really helps you understand very quickly and efficiently how to make an impression of the subject whatever it is mm. and she taught me that she taught me it might be the broad side of a piece of charcoal that is almost just like a a, a tone a veil of you know gray or it might be the snap sharp outline of something that joins one object to the next or um, you know the, the way that you use a pencil you know or whatever charcoal is incredibly various mm. and uh, you know useful. And also I suppose you, it's a good way of learning about light on an object as of well. Of course everything yeah. yeah so without going into you know painting and, and watercolour and all of those things we didn't really do any of that much. We did a bit of watercolour. But um, we just spent a long time drawing and looking and mm. she, she showed me how to observe the spaces between objects, you know, might be the sort of the distance between two trees or the shape that was made between two objects on a table as opposed mm. to just drawing harsh outlines of the objects themselves. She taught me how to sort of draw the space between them and the light or the shadow that linked the two mm. objects as much as the detail within the actual object itself there was what was happening around it the shadow the consequence of the object being there yeah. so there's that sort of sense of engaging with the subject that I think she taught me a great deal about and I think John Peart also was at Wedderburn and you were his studio assistant and he was more of an abstract artist wasn't he yes so John was um, almost always devoted keenly to abstraction in its purest sense and you know the the formal understanding of of abstraction and painting and he was never really reliant on having to go out and, and make observations of the landscape or mm. of whatever there was the subject was all in his head and in his intellect he was a very um highly intelligent and um, intellectual person that's <laughs> not to say that landscape painters aren't <laughs> Well, did you take anything from his work, do you think? Not so much, no, but we were very close. We were very mm. close friends and mm. I lived at his place for three years. Um, so I was his studio assistant. I was like the sort of live-in assistant. Right. Can you just tell me what a studio assistant does? Could be anything from weeding the garden to preparing canvases or cleaning brushes, sorting out drawers full of drawings you know there's sort of archival work do you find that did you find that a valuable experience absolutely vitally important to my 
education or, or whatever it is that I was doing, sort of, you know, um, self-directed curriculums of, of education that I was then went on to uh, sort of apprentice myself to a lot of other artists. Oh, okay. That was the early part of my, yeah. Oh, okay. As well as going to art school. So I went to... You went to National Art School. The, yeah, it was East Sydney Tech then. Mm. Um, oh, no, I think it was called National Art School, but I don't know. We, we called it East Sydney Tech. Mm. And um, I would also, at the same time, I wasn't, didn't have much of a social life. I wasn't running around with, you know, girlfriends or anything then. Um, I would be catching buses to Waverley to Ann Thompson's studio or Greenwich to Guy Warren and Joy Warren's place. So you were really immersing yourself yeah, in... Yeah, and with as many varying artists as different to each other as I could possibly find. So I might be working with Margaret Tuxon one day and Martin Sharp the next or John Peart and then Gary Shedd in right. Bundina. All over the place. I was travelling by public transport to all of these studios and to, did you have um, your own art practice at the time? No, not, no. A, not a bit. I was still learning. I mean, I was interested in learning, but I just didn't know how to be in the studio. But I certainly learned a lot about being in a studio and how to kind of spend time in a studio by being with those artists. Because yeah, I realised it wasn't just about time spent at the easel. You know, there's a lot of different ways to spend time in the studio. It might be reading, going through books. You might be just sorting out your own drawings. You might be going through drawers of things. And you, the whole time you really are sort of formulating ideas, remembering suppose, things. Yeah. And rejecting things, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to be able to edit your own work. That's very important. Mm. Tearing things up, mm. painting things over. Yeah. Well, can we jump forward a little bit? Because we are now, well, we're sitting in your studio in Hill End, which is the most um, beautiful town in west of Sydney. It's about four hours west of Sydney. And it's got an amazing history. It was a gold mining town back in the 1850s and 60s. And then later, of course, became this amazing artist community with, with um, Russell Drysdale, Donald Friend coming in the 40s. And then, you know, we've got Margaret Ollie, Geoffrey Smart, John Olson, there's a whole lot of people. And now, of course, there is a this thriving art community and you've been here for 20 years, I think, mm. or mm. about More. 20 years. Yeah. How did that come about? I came to Hill End on a weekend away with Greer, who was then my girlfriend, became my wife, then became my ex-wife. We're still very close. <laughs> but she um, and I came here to visit friends, Peter and Mandy Wright, who I'd met at Martin Sharp's place late one night. Anyway, so that was in 97. and at So the, that was only a couple of years after you finished art school. Is that right? Uh, when I was still at art school. Oh, okay. Actually, hang on a minute. No, the first time I ever came here was with a group from the art school. The oh, same year, 97. Oh, right. And um, a group of art students and me, oh, I was one of them, and a bunch of the teachers, um, Rodney Popel and a few others, came uh, because a lot of the older artists like Anne Thompson and uh, Martin Sharp had told me about old, old days, as they call them, trips out to Hill End that art students used to do in the 60s okay. and stay in derelict houses and muck up, you know, whatever. Right. Run up and down the gullies and paint nuggets with gold paint and throw them back in as nuggets or whatever. And, <laughs> um, you know, they, there was a, a sort of um, a bit of a folklore around... Mm. the artists of Hill End. So mm. I, I put the trip together and we came up. We went to Tim Storia's place on the way and had a 
bit of a booze up there and... <laughs> And, uh, yeah, so that's 22 years ago. Right. Yeah. And so you decided, so you fell in love with it when you first, when you, the first time you came, is that what? Yes, yeah. yeah. I, I, I sort of, I think I fell in love with the community as much as anything. There was um, a wonderful, and still is, uh, there's a wonderful sort of sense of understanding that the locals have here, and I count myself among them now, of whoever comes here, has their own story to tell. They don't have to pretend to be, you know, wearing a Kubra hat and a sort of, <laughs> you know, what do you call it, a uh, lumberjack shirt something. Check. What do you call those things? Yeah, like anyway. a, yeah, and a yeah. country sort of shirt. Yeah. Uh, there's, you know, I turned up as a skinny young art student with long hair with a Larry shirt and ripped up pants and, and that's just, they, well, oh, that's him, that's that guy over there, whatever. And what about the actual landscape here? Because you painted that again and again as well. I painted the hill end for a long time, but then I sort of came to the point when I realised that travel elsewhere was more, I guess, uh, stimulating and challenging for Mm. me. I mean, the landscape around here is totally unique because it was scoured and quite literally pulled inside out by the mining Mm. and um, destroyed, really. And so there was a sort of interesting paradox of of painting a landscape that's very beautiful but also it's interesting because it's been demolished by human industry and then Mm. watching you know watching nature kind of have its way Mm. of taking over again but yeah yeah, but I think um I my my work now is pretty much all about traveling to new places every year um and and responding to that Mm. which is very challenging sometimes. Well, you've travelled Well, you've travelled all around Australia and far north Queensland down to Tasmania, central Australia um, and uh, western Australia, of course. And, you, of course, you've been overseas to places like France, Belgium, uh, Turkey, China, China Hong Kong. Yeah, Turkey, Hong yeah. Kong. So, Italy. I, I go to Italy regu- regularly. Oh, okay, right. Yeah. So do you, do you find that you plan your trips, like each year do you have something coming up? You've always got something on the horizon. There's a lot to look forward to normally, but I can't say that there's a sort of curriculum of, of travels or, uh, you know, an itinerary that I follow, but I'm always ready for the next invitation. I mean, I'm not one who sort of spins the little globe around and puts my finger down at random and say, that's where I'm going next, um, uh, because right. I'm not nearly as adventurous as that at all. I almost need to be dragged along yeah, well, you went to two places overseas in relation to World War One, and the first was to Gallipoli in Turkey, and the second was um, more recently to uh, like France and Belgium, and that was that resulted in the Salient Western Front exhibition, which is uh, which I've actually talked about on the podcast. I have done a whole episode on it. You've done a magnificent painting in that exhibition. It's actually currently hanging in the Anzac. Uh, memorial in Hyde Park in Sydney and it's called Fireflies Bull Call and I, I just found that so magnificent because it's it's well it's huge it's a, over three and a half meters long and it's about 160 centimeters high and now this place Bull Call, is in France and this is I think that was the place was it a place where there were about there were two Australian battles I think were fought there oh it, it was a, a a huge uh story I mean you there are books written about just that one place. And Bulkor captured my imagination because it's a, it's a unique landscape for France. It's, it's a, 
a, a low dish between Agincourt, Boulcourt, and I think Reincourt is further on. And then there are these submerged roads that are cut like huge trenches through the landscape, mm. which is now agricultural sort of, you know, land. Mm. But there are still hand grenades and things being found there. But the painting actually came from an idea uh, that I had while we were there and we were learning about the history of it. Charles Bean wrote at the time as a correspondent back to Australia, he wrote that in the night the um, miles and miles and miles of barbed wire were coiled across the landscape and they were snagging the soldiers, the Australian soldiers, in this barbed wire. And there's this harrowing image of the German bullets glancing off the barbed wire and illuminating the landscape like fireflies in the night. Mm. And so Charles Bean found... I just got shivers saying that. Mm. That Charles Bean wrote about this awful thing, this awful scene and awful sort of problem that was facing the soldiers that was described in a, a beautiful way, you know, like mm. to say that the, the, the bullets were illuminating the landscape like fireflies. And you can see that little the, the glimpses of the, the flashes of light glancing off the, the barbed wire. Um, oh. it, was, it just sort of captivated my, captured mm. my imagination. Well, I should, come at this point, ex- describe the painting. It's, it's very interesting because you used very cool colours. It, and, and as is typical with most of your work, it's a wonderful accumulation of layers of forms, and then on top that final layer of that those firefly sparks that you're talking about, which I didn't realise that story mm. because when I looked at the painting, I thought when it's the name of it is fireflies, it's so romantic. But now with this with this explanation, it just seems so tragic. Yes, it's one of the rare works that I've done that was germinated by an idea. By a, um, I knew that I would come back to the studio and make that painting. Mm. And I set to coming back to Australia. I I got to the studio, sort of determined to get this picture out of myself. It was like a, it was there. I just had to kind of go through the motions of the process of of making it. And of course, it took a long time to resolve. Mm. I mean, it wasn't by any stretch of the imagination an easy picture to make. It's difficult to sort of talk about the Aboriginal communities because they're, they're each so different and so unique and the, each part of Australia is like a different nation again. But um, years ago, I came to realise that the, the way to get my finger on the pulse of a place and to understand or make a reflection of the sense of place is to learn it through the eyes of the people who live there. So to spend time with the, the indigenous people of wherever it, happens to, I, wherever it happens to be in Australia uh, has been a very steep learning curve for me. And it started about 10 years ago, I guess, or more, in Moree. And I worked with the Aboriginal artists there with a group of non-indigenous artists. Well, one of the things I've, I've read you say about that time and, and the time you've spent with Aboriginal people in, in the landscape is that what you learnt from them is that it's not, it's not about look and put with your painting. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So when you 
blast through a, a, a landscape on the, you know, you go through along the highway, you go through a place and you think you can stop on the side of the road and take pictures or do a drawing or, you know, whatever. Um, you climb the nearest high rock and have a look around and all of that. That's very nice and that's a fantastic way to spend time. But when you learn about a place and when you really, you, you see, uh, you see a place through the eyes of the people who know it so well, you can bend your view into imbuing it with a bit of an energy that's given to you by the people there. And it sort of entitles you to see the place differently because of the welcome that you've been given by them. There's a sort of blessing that you get when either Indigenous people welcome you and fling the place open to you or a grazier shows you how they view the world. Whoever it happens to be changes the way you view the world around mm. you and it, it adds a dimension that is more than the look and put. It's very important to me to, to always draw and observe and, and to uh, make your own sort of inflection regarding the subject. And that doesn't just arrive. You know, you have to work at it. It doesn't come easy. You know, it's, it's not as easy as people think. And that's mm. sometimes a tough thing to say because I've said it to people about particular artworks. And you say, it's not as easy as you think because they think, oh, yeah, I'll just do it like that. Well, it doesn't, yeah, doesn't no, come that. No, that's right. And that's the thing about your work. And I think it's got something to do with what you were saying about the organic nature of it. Mm. And that's a very hard thing to achieve. With any luck, it, uh, it comes across as a brief and organic mark or tone or shape or whatever, mm. or atmosphere, whatever it is. Mm. Um, but it just, it's just, you have to keep your hand in it. Mm. You know, there's a... Mm. Um, John Olson reflected to me something fantastic that a golfer, professional golfer said on, on the idea of being lucky. And he said, well, the more I practice, the luckier I get. <laughs> yeah. And it's true. Yeah. It's, it sounds That's arrogant, right. but, you, you know, you've got to well, it's work like, at it. And also those, you know, that, those accidents that we call accidents, you know, probably occur more frequently the more you practice, mm. in a way. Mm. I mean, or, or at least you know how to, to recognise them. Yes, and it's also learning how to either leave it behind or start again or paint over it or whatever, you know, just honing the eye. Mm. But also the meaning of the word draw has so many implications. Mm. You know, the use of the word has so many implications. To, to draw something nearer to yourself to, is to bring the subject nearer to you, within you mm. even, mm. or to draw water from a well, you know, to extract, to get the essence, to, to, get, to extract something. Mm. is what you do when you draw. But it's not uh, the thing itself. It's the extraction of it, the essence. Mm. And, uh, you know, to, to, that's, it's the, that's the benefit of drawing. You know, you, you bring something inside you, to the inside of yourself. Like you withdraw money from a bank. You glean something. Yeah. And... What would you go to? What's your most preferred sort of medium for drawing? 
I don't have one. You don't. It can be whatever happens. No, but it's a fantastically primitive and at once sophisticated medium that is so various. It could be a piece of charcoal, the oldest form of art making there is, a lump of burnt wood, you know, on a cave wall, or, you know, you think of how people have used charcoal in modern times. It's so beautiful mm. and so sophisticated and so elemental. But then there's ink and brushes and nibs yeah, and, yeah. you know, you and can throw things. a glass mm. of water across the page and then yeah. work back into it and then the ink bleeds through the water. But then there's a sharp line when it's on dry paper. It's so various. It's so um, there are so many opportunities. Well, that's the thing, I think, with drawing, to vary your mark is so important. I mean, when you look at one of those drawings of those, those you know, masters or these great ones you admire, it, it's, I think what it is that's so appealing is the, you can almost see the pressure of, of the hand exactly. in the line. That, to me, is the appeal, because you see the evidence of the human hand. Yeah. But then there's the eye and the intent... And the way that a painter looks at an artwork is normally different to anyone else because mm. you, it's interesting to look at the artworks that a, an artist hangs in their house. Mm. They're almost invariably and very strongly about the intent behind the work or the motive and the idea, but also the inflection of the human hand. The maker's mark mm. is a, a touch, a human touch, that has a universal appeal. And that's what I think I can see in your work. Right, great. Because, because there's such a variation yeah. in the marks, you know, because you've got scraping back, you've got, you know, thicker areas of paint, mm. glazes, and I think it's just an endless, you know, feast for the eyes, and that's why you can just keep returning to I it. I know, it's pretty good. But, I mean, it's a... Oh, no, I'm not talking about my own work. I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful pursuit, and it's so... You can have it all, like... You know, painting is a oh, it's such a treat, such a gift, and it's so generous. There's nothing like I keep comparing it to cooking, but it is like I think it occupies a lot of the same parts of my brain mm. to, well, yeah. to how you think, you know, about the potential of one idea to the next and one painting to the next. You know, it's like you, you boil a rooster and you use the stock to make a uh, cassoulet and then the meat to make a pie. And then, you know, the one sort of meal has an implication or uh, triggers an idea for the next. Yeah. Same with paintings. Paintings, you know, I refer to backwards and forwards, cross-referencing all the time, stealing ideas all the time. There's a lovely consistency to watch in one painter's work from one series to the next, mm. how they take ideas and whichever way the mop flops, you know. Yeah. You're the same person just looking at a different subject. Yeah, it's right. always the same handwriting. You don't necessarily change your style of painting or your ideas just because you're looking at a different subject, but it does colour the way you put a painting together. Now, one thing I'm really interested in, now, one of your great strengths, there's a lot of great strengths, but one of the best ones, one of the greatest ones no is, is your use of colour. 
And I notice that when you are at a different landscape, you seem to use a different palette. And that's going to be the palette that's consistent with that landscape. Mm, mm. Is that something that you consider when you're there working in plain air or is that something you're going to consider when you get back to the studio? A lot of those decisions are almost like body memories. They just come to you. And I, I have a pretty well-stocked cupboard of paint here. So I can kind of just almost automatically reach for colours that take me back there. So mm. the process of applying a mark or a shape or a tone or a texture to a painting is as important as the colour is that the painting is made of. But, I mean, there's a sort of instinctive feeling for colour that you have to trust in yourself. And so there is the process of every, everything that you apply, all those things I just said, either take you closer to or further away from the subject. And it's a dance and it's a very intricate process of synapses working very quickly that say, oh, yes, no, yes, no, yes, mm. no. So you're, you're following your instincts, but at the same time making decisions mm. ahead, a, ahead of and behind the applied mark. Mm. And it's like the colour that you use for a sky, a blue might have green in it or brown or yellow or whether the sky has an atmosphere from a particular type of time of day or whether there was a, a bushfire somewhere in the distance and completely changes the atmosphere mm. and the tone of a, of, a, of a place. Those sorts of endless uh, variations in, in painterly options give you the opportunity and the challenge to find your way closer to the subject. And you so, know very quickly, bloody well, that the something's taking you in the wrong direction. You, oh, do you? Oh, yeah. What, because it's jarring? Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, no, what are you doing? That's a, oh. that's a Tasmanian-coloured sky, not a Kimberley Coast-coloured sky. Or, a, you know, you don't get that coloured sand in, uh, you know, Coffs Harbour. Right. You have the... Um, and the warm and the cool, you know. You, mm. you can't make... The, uh, the beautiful sort of sandy pink of a clay pan in Wilcannia or the bed of the Fink River in the Northern Territory with the wrong temperature of pink. You know, you've got to think or, or hopefully intuit where you're headed with your materials. Mm. You, have, you mm. can't just go, okay, red and white. Yeah, right. They're all different. Yeah, of there course. There are so many reds and there's so many pinks and they're... They're yeah. either yeah. they're sort of kick towards blue, or they always kick towards orange, or something. You know, they're mm. they're all they're all different. You can use them all at once, but you've got to watch it. Yeah. Well, I, I really love the palette you used in those that Belle Ile show, like the turquoise and the greens, like almost lime green. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So you must have been. So there must have been something about that place that just led you towards those colours. Yes, absolutely. Um, and having been on Belle Ile observing the place, it took a while for me to get past the awe of seeing the landscape that Monet and Matisse and John Peter Russell had all painted mm. so vividly, and it hasn't changed a bit. We were walking around thinking, oh, my God, there's another, you know, well-known view, and, oh, here yeah, we are, I know nice. this hill so yeah. well. I know those cracks in those rocks opposite, on the opposite side of the bay so well, or would it, you know... Yeah. Uh, it's difficult sometimes not to be uh, 
totally, you know, starstruck by a landscape. Yeah. Well, actually, you know what we haven't talked about is your plein air work. And I just wanted to talk about how you go about that. Like, it's, it's uh, watercolours usually, gouache, is that Everything. what you use? I take acrylics, watercolours, gouache, pastel, charcoal, and I oh, okay. sometimes use them all and sometimes wish I didn't have to lug them all around. <laughs> and I think, oh, my God, you know, could have brought a fucking stick of charcoal with me on this trip or a pencil, you know, yeah. because you might really just find yourself wanting to observe the anatomy of... A tree, you know. I mean, mm. everything grows differently all over the world. The oak tree in France grows differently to the the boab on the Kimberley, or the river red gum in Wilcannia, or the spinifex, or the, everything's different. It's sometimes it's um, it's vitally important to just focus on the nuance of a of a one part of the landscape is mm. constructed, and then. At other times, I would love to surround myself with all of those materials, plein air materials, mm. and, and have pieces of paper all around me that in various stages of um, completion flutter away in the wind or, you know, get stuck together or whatever. It doesn't matter, you know, because they're yeah. becoming part of the process. You're feeling the wind. Yeah. You're in the sun and they get caught by the wind and that spills the the wet paint all across the page or whatever, not necessarily in a destructive way, but in a, you have to accept that you're in the, in the landscape. Mm. You're, 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 mm. uh, you're with, you're among the elements. Yeah, definitely. And they're very rare uh, moments that you get, you know, to, because you travel a long bloody way to get there and you've only got, you know, half an hour or an hour or, or the afternoon or whatever it happens to be. And there's always something that might come up that makes you feel the urgency to work in some ways, you know, a great pace. Why, why do you mean? What do you well, mean? it might get too hot. Someone in, uh, in your group or near you needs to go or mm. the driver is coming in a bus to pick you yeah, up right. or you're um, It's quite good to hungry. have limitations like that. Yeah, yeah, well, something always comes up yeah. or it starts to rain or you've yeah, got to go. yeah. Or there's always something, you know, life gets mm. in the way. You can't, mm. you can't just sort of be, you know, under a tree uh, or some sort of, you know. How <laughs> oh, is it at your own you disposal? Know, yeah, yeah, like well, a Buddha. What, so what, so do you um, plan that you're going to do a, a number of works, plein air, to bring back to the studio to work on? So have you, do you have to have a body... Uh, you know, do you have to have um, described for yourself the landscape pretty, pretty um, in detail for you to? I have back? to have studied it, not described it. I don't always work directly from the works on paper that I've done in the bush mm. or, or wherever. Mm. Uh, I uh, it, it it helps though to have studied the place, and so I I I, I just sort of bounce off those those plein air works yeah. rather than scale them up. Yeah, exactly. You know, I don't just kind of grid it up and go, oh, hang on a minute, no, there's a rock there. Yeah. I, I use them as, as the raw materials from which I, I start a painting that takes months to, to resolve, but mm. 
You know, well, sometimes you can do lots of drawings and then really hardly ever refer to them. Yeah. I think that can often happen. But it's it's somehow embedded in your brain, yeah. that whole experience. So you don't sort of in a way need to refer to them that much. That's right. But you can. And that's, you know, I've got sketchbooks full of things here that are sometimes just little pencil studies. Mm. Very quiet little, wouldn't mean anything to anyone else but me. They're like a little shorthand notes. Yeah. Well, I've seen some absolutely beautiful um, ink drawings that you've done as well, ink and wash. Mm. Um, and are they done with a... Do you use a brush or a nib? What do yes, you... I have um, nibs and steel brushes and... Oh, steel oh. brushes. Yeah, steel brushes are fantastic. They hold a lot of ink, but they're made of little flaps of steel, stainless steel, and they, they give you a fantastic point, but also the broad side of them. Yeah, right. But yeah, but yeah. Yeah, so sometimes, you know, I just use a stick or a feather. But I've got favourite things or two, brushes I've bought all over the world and mm, bits mm. and pieces you hang on to and they, they all remind you of, you know, places you've been. Yeah. And when you get back to the studio, a huge part of your work is, is that layering process. Do you have a pretty good idea from the beginning what each layer is going, how it's going to work? No, because sometimes, you know, I, you, well, you can't think backwards and you certainly can't think forwards when you're, you're just responding to what is there. So I don't ever sort of think, now I'm going to put down these white marks now because I know that in a fortnight I'll come back and put a big black glaze all over it and then scrape it all off to reveal the white marks again. I just think, no, there are all these white marks and they're dry. I want to put some black glaze over it and then scrape back to, you know, you're just responding oh, yeah, to, right. the, to the thing. Yeah. If I planned a painting and then set to try to achieve what I was planning, I'd just go mad and I would give up and I'd hate it. <laughs> and I'd think, what's the point? Because the yeah. whole process for me of engaging with a, a sort of dialogue with the paint and the painting itself is to respond. Mm. I'm not into sort of applying my, you know, cognitive decisions. Mm. I like to to uh, read what's there and what has happened and see things from a distance when you've got to get back from a painting and say, oh, God, I didn't even mean to do that. Each colour next to one another, one another has its own implications and they don't necessarily get planned. Mm. They just happen by accident. Yeah. And then you're in the process of either deciding to leave it there or changing it. And... Yeah, it can seem endless. Yeah, yeah, and that's tied in with the whole idea of when is a painting finished, I yes, suppose, yeah. which must be difficult sometimes. Yes, I know about that. I, I had all my work photographed yesterday for this exhibition and I, <laughs> I was touching them up as, as we were going because I realised the minute that camera clicks... Yeah. That's it, I'm not allowed to touch it because yeah. it's going to be in the catalogue or it's going to belong to someone else and that's it. But, um, <laughs> you know, no, that's good because to have a little deadline is... Well, it is good. I think that's right, especially yeah. with works like this that, you know, just evolve, like, you yeah. know, and, and when do you end them? They just... Yes. But generally, the point comes with a painting that you know that you could apply a, a scumble here or a glaze there or a sharp line or a... Uh, a mark or a tone, whatever um, device you might use here or there, and the painting says no, 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 maybe, but no, no. And that's it. That's when you know that you've got nothing more to say. So it's not in the least to say that it's perfect, but it, it just says this will 
This, yes. is, this is it. Oh, that's so interesting. And also, because you can over egg the custard too. If you push them too hard, you might you run the risk of losing a, an element of freshness and an organic appeal, even if it's slightly clumsy, even if it's slightly clunky. In my head, I'm back at that place when I look at that painting, and I enjoy it. So leave it. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, I have spoken to other artists who say that. Sometimes if you feel like that, if you turn it around and leave it for a while and then a few weeks later, it doesn't, it doesn't bother you as much. Yes. Perhaps. I generally find that if I leave a painting alone for a while, and I normally have to because I've got dozens of things to work on and they take a long time to dry, so I really, really sometimes leave them for weeks or months mm. and then pull them out, you think, oh, wow, what was I thinking? You're <laughs> far from finished. And you go for it. It's um, ah. fabulous to work on an, on a, an entirely dry surface yeah. of a painting that... Um, when you say go for it, what would you do? Oh, boy, you can put a, make up a big sloppy bucket of coloured glaze and then get a massive brush and paint like a curtain veil right over half of the picture and then get a scraper and scrape it all off and then etch back into it with the back side of a knife so that you're actually drawing back into a painting. You can do anything. Yeah, it's like you're liberated. Absolutely. It's terrific. Yeah, isn't that funny? It's just a period of time has detached you from it. Yes. In a way. Yes, you see it with totally new eyes. Mm. Even from one day to the next. You walk into the studio and you think, oh, God, the bad angels have been in here overnight <laughs> and really made that painting look terrible <laughs> because you, you can often be too close to a painting to to know oh definitely that's you right think, you especially know, you if you've spent a lot of time on it yes. and you can't see it afresh. you think oh my god what yeah what tricks have you got to deal with that have you got any do you ever turn them upside down no, I don't do any of those things. Mm, mirrors, There's nothing mirrors, like that? No, binoculars, backwards, all that stuff. <laughs> Brett Whiteley, Sidney Nolan, they all do that sort of thing. Fred Williams, stand it on your head. Someone said to me the other day, a painting should look as good upside down. I think bullshit. How ridiculous. It's a, you resolve a painting with every bit of exacting scrutiny that your eye has honed for your entire life. And if you turn it upside down, it doesn't work at all. <laughs> it looks stupid. It looks like an upside down painting. And if people present to me an upside down painting and say that that's the way it meant, it's meant to be, I immediately almost get whiplash trying to twist my head upside down <laughs> to look at it the right way up. I don't get it. That's okay. Everyone's different. <laughs> yeah. I suppose it must have something to do with if you turn it upside down, it's, it sort of looks you can tell if it's balanced or something. I don't know. Well, I tell you what does work with mirrors is portraits. Yes. Because then you can really see if there's something going well, wrong. Well, because you've got, well, you're, well especially a so self-portrait, you're drawing yourself in the mirror, so it's not how you look at all. Yeah, you're right about that. Well, you wouldn't know because you well, don't see each other. Except, you don't no, see but you yourself look at yourself in a photograph and you think, oh, no, I look like that. And you realise oh, yeah. because you're so used to seeing yourself in the mirror... Yeah. And very different. Like me, I've got a very asymmetrical face. So whenever I, you know, you see yourself very differently to the way everyone else does. It's, it's true, isn't it? So, mm. I mean, really, to look at a painting in a mirror or through the backside of binoculars or any of that stuff, or upside down, is a search for perfection that I really don't think is either warranted or necessary because of the fact that... It, I, I like to look at a painting for exactly what it is. And there is a subject, 
there are sort of tonal qualities and aerial perspective, lineal perspective, all of those sorts of things that I don't we don't think about anymore. It's like riding a bike. You don't think about the rules. But they do apply. Mm. And to me, they make a difference. So mm. I noticed that time after time, you know, you, you sort of do find yourself using devices that are formal technical rules, I guess, that make a picture either work or not work. What sort of... You, do you ever I mean, use for example, any of the formal... Someone pointed out that, to me, you know, that, that sometimes there is a tonal rule that things... Shadows, for example. Say if you're looking at a rocky landscape, the shadows in the foreground are crisp and black and dark, mm. and the ones in the background are all grey and fuzzy. Because of the atmosphere that's between you and the background uh, comes between you it softens all of the shadows so you put the shadows and the hardest sharpest darkest areas of a painting in the foreground mm -hmm. and the lightest ones in the background and to the top generally because mm. of that's how you see yeah. so if you turn a painting like that upside down you know it's black at the top <laughs> and white at the bottom and it makes you feel as though you're going to fall over <laughs> i don't want to feel like it. i don't want to feel like that it, on that point of, of those sort of formal <laughs> Unless um, I'm drunk. rules, yeah, right. Um, do, would you employ those at all? So, for example, even that one that you were talking about, or rules of perspective, for example. Actually, we were talking about perspective before, mm. and I think the rules of perspective you would have thrown out the window. You do, but it's important to know them in the beginning. You know, that really simple thing we all did at school of drawing a horizon line, and then the two lines that show you the shape of a highway. So you make an upside-down V-shape yep. down from the horizon line. You've got the highway. That's like those things are so understood and, and so commonly applied that you really don't even know you're doing it. It's like, mm. you know, mm. you put salt in the water that you boil spaghetti in. You just do it. You don't even know you're doing it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, are, in um, other words, if you wanted to push something back back further, you're going, well, you, you've got a, an innate understanding of how to do that yes. in a way. Yes, and at the same time, I also know when I'm, um, you know, stretching the elastic of the rules and I know when you you realise some just by feel and by, by feeling, you might sort of pull a landscape up and lift it up, as I said before, like a tabletop, you know, you, you push it up so that it's flat. And yep. that's just, that just sort of comes naturally. I don't kind of think, you don't think that stuff up. It's not like a gimmick that you think, oh, this will get them. What if I put the beach flat so it's like a vertical rectangle and then you can see the whole thing at once? I don't know. I've just got a bucket of beach-coloured paint and I put it on. Yeah, right. And it looks good. But also it feels good. And when, yes, you're, when yes. you're making a painting, you're just doing it with your body and your eyes and you're yeah. doing it by feel and yeah. that's my job to make it by feel and and yeah. so to to push perspective or whatever out the window is um is just a sense of liberation and I guess it comes with confidence and Mm. You know? mm. Well, we were talking before about um, getting back from the painting and that leads me to be able to see it, you know, probably. Mm. And that leads me to talking about this space we're sitting in. 
which is the most amazing studio. I was When I interviewed Louise Heeman, I said to her I had studio envy because she had that car, you know, warehouse or something. It's a huge warehouse. But I've got double studio envy because this is... Oh, good. I'll tell Louise that. <laughs> this is the most amazing place because it, it's an, a form, it was formerly a church. It's a stone building. I think, when is it from the 1860s? It was built in the 1860s, yeah. Just the most divine um, place with amazing windows um, and beautiful light getting coming in here. Did you find that when you moved to this studio, your work changed at all because of the space? Yes, it did. Because previously I'd used uh, old shearing sheds with dirt floors, mm. no windows, often walls missing. <laughs> Uh, so you'd have the elements coming in, you'd yeah. have heat going out in winter. You, you battle in some spaces just to kind of survive it. You know? mm, well, to do works this big would have been hard, I would presume, yes. in spaces like that. Yeah, yeah. The larger scale is something that I've really only tackled since I've had this space mm. um, because it gives me the opportunity to, firstly, move things around and not have things on a dirt floor. <laughs> you know, simple <laughs> things. And so one studio I had for a little while was a train carriage that I owned that was about as long as this studio. It was actually enormously long, but I could only look at one picture at a time because <laughs> we could only get back, well, I could get back from two pictures at a time, one at each end. And, uh, well, it was but, actually a train carriage. Yes, from the 1920s. It was a gorgeous old train oh, carriage and wow. I sold it. But this space, nothing to do with its history or architecture. It just gives me the, 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 the practical sort of room and facility to work on a number of pictures and, and the scale of pictures that I have been without having to think about whether or not I have to put bricks along in a row to rest a painting on so that it's not sitting in dirt or yeah. mud or whether the feral cats were going to spray it in the mm. night with their piss or, you know, whatever. <laughs> well, you can also surround yourself with um, other things that that feed the eye, you know? Yes. So you've got books, you've got um, sort of uh, artefacts and things and... Yeah. Well, artefacts not the word. What's, what's yeah, there are word? many yeah. artefacts and skulls and things. Yes, yeah, skulls. And, and, and somehow it sort of imbues the space with with some energy or something. That yeah. I, I can imagine when you walk in here, you must be able to get into that flow well, pretty easily. Well, when you're in a, in a studio that is filled with the things that inspire you and remind you, you it's, it's sort of like being inside your own head. It's like a, an extension of your thoughts and memories. Mm. And there are so many triggers and things. I mean, win, windows and, and doors is, is, is a luxury to have in a studio, and I've got them. <laughs> but I have to admit, I never take for granted the fact that it is such a beautiful space and I've got friends to thank for helping me get it and, in, and egging me on to, to get it. Right. Um, what, did it just become available yeah. at, a, at a certain point, right? Yeah. Wendy Whiteley talked me into buying it and... Uh, oh, okay. I was, you know, it was sort of a difficult time and uh, the, the lease was being terminated because the bishop had to sell this building to bail them out of financial trouble. Oh, okay. And I just said, oh, look, okay, whatever. I'll just get myself another shearing shed. <laughs> and I had a three-quarters of an hour conversation with Wendy who said, you know, she's 
swore at me. I won't swear on your podcast. <laughs> I can put an E rating on it. <laughs> Explicit. No, she said you're a serious effing painter. You need a serious effing space. So just effing buy it, you know, because you're not going to get anything done unless you do. And that's if that's what you're going to do, then do it. She's right. Yeah. And that's what she said. Brett yeah. always, wherever we were, no matter how much money there was or not, Brett always made sure that he had the space to get the work mm. done that he needed to do. Mm. And, mm. and it is as simple as that. Yeah, it's wonderful. It's a really great space. Yeah. Um, do you have any, do you ever have problems with procrastination? Yes. And I have ways of getting around it. But, you know, that's all right. It's just called taking mm. aim. We're not like building a brick wall. You can't mm. just go to it yep. and necessarily put one thing after the other. There's an element of playfulness that you can engage with, with starting a painting with great abandon or, or, or affected carelessness. But then, you know, you can... One thing after another, you think, oh, hang on, no, no, there's something happening here and something to respond to, yeah. and sometimes that's how you do it. Um, other times, you just have to wait. You just... Well, do you uh, paint every day? Yes. Weekends as well? Oh, yeah, I don't give just... a bugger whether it's Sunday or Wednesday. I often don't know <laughs> oh, what really? day of the week it isn't. Yeah. My routine has nothing to do with weekdays, working days or weekends. So to you, taking a day off is not really an enjoyable idea? Depends on what a replaced painting is. <laughs> do, you go, do you go to the big city much? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I do. Because I, I, I conduct business and I sit on boards and I have a great social life and, you know, a daughter and a, yeah. lots of reasons to, to uh, go to Sydney and sometimes cabin fever. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, you get to the point where you just need a break from looking at pictures, working on paintings. Mm. Uh, yes, you need a, need a balance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's, there are very few artists who um, just sort of sit at the coalface applying paint without needing either a break or, you know, stimulation. Mm, mm. Oh, you've got to blow off a bit of steam every now and again. Yeah. And also, just one other thing I wanted to raise. Well, actually, it might be more than one other thing, but um, I get the feeling when I read your writings that you must really enjoy writing as well. I do, actually. You've got a real... I really enjoyed reading what, you know, various things you've written about. Oh, thank you. I, I do enjoy writing because painting has no words. The process of painting mm -hmm. has no words. When I'm working... I realised this a few years ago. You don't use vocabulary. It's like grunting, you know. <laughs> it's like, you know, there's some... It's entirely made up of the senses, all of the senses. And like sex, you know. <laughs> That's very, actually, very hard to write about sex. Yeah. But, I mean, between partners too, you, you can kind of sexy talk, but to analyse it or talk about it all the time. Or to, ah, what I mean to say is to decide what you're going to try or do next. You don't do that with a painting. You do it by feel and you oh, do something by accident. Oh, my God, there's a beautiful colour that feels fantastic. You're just free-falling through the process of something that is entirely sensory. Mm. 
and uh, they're mm. writing to write um, uh, well, about one or whatever subject, my adventures or travel or painting, is uh, the antidote to that, the underbelly of, of that, I guess. Yeah, right. But it, it's a, a lovely thing to explore with words because when you're at the easel with any luck, you're not using your words. Actually, talking about words and talking about language... And this is probably something I don't think I've actually asked any artist this, and it's, it's one of those questions that are impossible to answer, so I'm preparing oh, you. God, yeah. How do you feel that an artist finds their visual language? Or how, what is a way, or what, through your experience, how did you find your language, do you think? It's absolutely not a thing I searched for to invent. It's not like a jingle that I cooked up a composed brand style. It's just my handwriting. And it's always been the way that I draw and paint in the way that I do. And it's, it evolves as naturally and as slowly, I guess, as the look of someone's face. You can see in a photograph, oh yes, that's me 20 years ago. Mm. Just like you can in a, looking at a painting of mine 20 years ago. You see, I sort of, you yeah, can see it's the same person, but, but if you look at all of the exhibitions or the paintings in between, you can see the gradation, you can see the slow sort of change, the thing, techniques get picked up and dropped off. Um, just as, you know, it's, my face has now yeah, right. wrinkles and grey bits. and So as you grow, it's like just growing, yeah. in a way, growing yeah. up. Yeah. I don't sure think it's... Um, what I mean is by that analogy, it's not something that you can decide to change. Well, I suppose that's sort of linked, though. But then, but then an artist is sort of... What do you think about the fact that an artist can be trapped in a certain style or something and they feel like they can't move away from it and they have to keep repeating it? Death. <laughs> it's like staying in a relationship that you, is making you extremely unhappy. Why? Walk yeah. away. Yeah. Kick yeah. them out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, people do it all the time. We all know. We all know examples. Um, people make the same bloody painting for yeah. decades. Yeah. Some with great success, enlightening success. Look at the um, minuscule variations from one painting to the next by Morandi. Oh, change the world yeah, of painting. Good point. Good point. So I believe in that. I believe that there is a purity in making a keen observation and almost a spiritual um, introspective reflection of, of a subject through paint over and over. But I think I'm a bit restless for that. It's almost like having a piece of driftwood on the table in the studio. Having a work on paper that I've done in the landscape is something that I worked very hard to do, some, a place I went very far to get to. In the instance of, say, the Kimberley, I was looking over my shoulders the whole time for crocodiles. That's no joke. Like, you know, you're on a beach and you're painting away and you're in the zone. You can't have headphones on listening to music because... There are crocodiles there that will take yeah. you and eat you. So there are <laughs> adversities that you confront and overcome to get those works. They are a one-off thing. 
So yeah. when I look at those, I can actually observe them as keenly as I did the actual subject and see things in them that I don't remember cognitively having put there or decided to do. Mm. There's a raw material element about those that mean that I can revisit painting that landscape again and again, maybe in years to come. Talking about Kimberley, we've got a show coming up, King Street Gallery, next month in March 2019, as if people are wondering, you know, listening to this in the future. And we're surrounded by these works which are absolutely breathtaking and they're going to get sent off to Sydney soon. You've had 40 solo shows, so this is um, not a new experience for you. Uh, what, how does it feel on, your, on the opening night of a show now as compared to the old days? Does it still feel, do you feel the same way? Or? The, I, I love the, the process of having an exhibition because the galleries are so beautiful. They care about the lighting and the, everything about it. They, the work is presented at its very best, in between being in my rat's nest of a studio and then going to someone's house with other people's work around. No, but there's just the clear, resonant gong of the work in its best light. You know, mm. it's got its makeup on, it's got yeah. its. Frames are on, the mascara, everything's looking good. And um, to see the, the body of work, and I like the, the moment of walking into a gallery after, you know, having, the, they've hung it. And I think, oh, it's like being in a room full of old friends. Mm. And that's just a, the best part of it. Then the opening parties are a, always a great sort of celebration. Uh, old friends come, new friends arrive. Um, you know, people who delight in the decision to buy a painting and want to tell you mm -hmm. about it. It's a handing over of, you know, the work of a lot of, a lot of work and a lot of care. Mm. Every part of every painting is um, done with great care. And so, you know, you're handing over your babies. Yeah, it's a yeah, great feeling. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, for one, am looking forward to seeing it in King Street Gallery in a few yeah. weeks' time. I'll be there. Yeah. And, um, and I just want to thank you so much, Luke, for having me here at, at Hillland. It has just been such a lovely experience in your environment and your studio. My pleasure. Thanks for asking such good questions. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Luke Scaveras. I'll soon be posting video of Luke talking with me in his studio and that will be on the website, on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And if you can get to his show in Sydney, it will be worth your while. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show for free through your podcast app and that way you'll get the next episode downloaded to your device automatically. And if you have time to rate and review on iTunes, that would be great. Thanks to all of you who have done that. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters. I, I'm not really interested in making paintings of places. That, that's a, a banal pursuit. Primarily I think of making paintings about paintings, but I'm using my adventures in the landscape as the material, the raw material, to hang my, my painterly obsession on.